And we're live with our 211th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. We are excited to be back. As always, we're going to be joined today and we'll do introductions for Brian a little bit later. Excited to talk about open context and you know what he's got going on over there. I've got a lot of questions, uh, but I'm sure we're going to get into it here shortly. Uh, as far as announcements go, uh, check out our training practical secure code review at DEFCON. It will be at DEFCON trainings. It's a couple of days after DEFCON. Uh, regular listeners of the podcast know we've been, um, we have been talking about it for a couple of months. Uh, seats are filling up. We did get notification here um, just a couple of days ago that there are signups. And so if you would like to attend, please consider us. Um, this is, of course, we've been given for a while. And there are updates to the course um, from the original uh, content that Ken and I built a few years ago, uh, just updates and tweaks to not necessarily the methodology, but the way that we're actually training people in that methodology. Um, outside of that, I did want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Redpoint Security. Um, Redpoint Security specializes in code security for coders bolstered by years of experience testing web and mobile applications, conducting circuit code reviews against those applications, as well as other types, including Web3 and smart contracts. It also offers training to help ground your teams in better security practices across the development lifecycle. So check out redpointsecurity.com for more information and put your company on a path to better security. Thanks to Redpoint. Um, outside of that, Ken, I don't necessarily have other announcements right now outside of, you know, both of us are going to be at DEF CON. Um, we're going to be doing a happy hour at DEF CON. I know we don't have details on that quite yet. Um, but if you are going to be there, uh, we'll start a channel in Slack for Vegas, uh, for hacker summer camp, whatever you want to call it. And if you would like an invite or you would like to come, you know, hang out with Ken and I one night, uh, and over drinks and talk security, let us know. Um, I don't know, Ken, have you been, have you guys talked any more about the um, happy hour? Uh, yeah, no, we, we, we I, I've been gone for about, uh, I took like a four day weekend. Um, but before that, yeah, we, we, yeah, we're, we're on track. We're definitely doing a, uh, <laughs> yes, free, free, free drinks. Yeah. We're definitely doing a happy hour. Um, we will work through the scheduling and get everything kind of finalized and start promoting soon. Um, yeah, I don't think besides that, I don't think there's any other news to really speak to in, uh, that, that I can think of. Um, I don't know. I've been offline for a bit, so I'm not sure if any, like if anything basically happened in the security world, Seth, I don't really know about it so, <laughs> in the last like four or five days, you know, I, and Brian probably knows this too. Like nothing ever happens in the security world. Right. It's all pretty, uh, oh. yeah, nothing. quiet. Right. Nothing ever happens. Right. Yeah. But when it does, it goes, it <laughs> yes. goes nuclear. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Well, uh, cool. With that, then, um, you know, we do want yeah. to introduce Brian Walter. Ken, do you want to do the honors there? Yeah. Right. So I met Brian at DevOps Days Austin. Um, and so it was uh, like the dry run because most of the people don't know most of our teams actually based out of Austin. Um, I'm the only one who's not. So. Anyways, they're, they're all heavily involved in DevOps Days Austin. I flew down there. I was hanging out with the team. I was hanging out at DevOps Days Austin. Met Brian. We had fantastic conversations. I think a lot of the, the ways that um, Brian's 
product and idea and philosophy works uh, falls a lot in line with some, some of the, the things we do, Seth, and when we learn how to understand an application and we do risk assessments and all that stuff, I think it's all very, very similar. So there's a lot of, um, it's just, we had really good conversations. We had really good, uh, really good dinner. I know Brian had a, uh, a pork chop that was to, to die for, uh, <laughs> like a, the three bone, the famous three bone pork chop. That's <laughs> awesome. I think it was um, the size of my head. I have pictures of it. It was, yeah, it was like, it was no joke, like this high. I mean, it was, it was I mean, not that this is perspective, but I don't know. It was, it was probably as tall as this iPhone. So it was, uh, it was awesome. But anyways, we had great conversations. Um, I, I figured, you know, like talking to Brian, we really should get Brian on the podcast, uh, talk about it. But as you know, um, so like laying the groundwork, uh, we first need to know about Brian's origin story. We first need to understand yes. how he came to be, you know, how, he, how did he become the CEO of open context and what was, what was the driving force there? And how do you, uh, how did your career path, you know, how did you get to where you're at in your career? What has yeah. your career path kind of looked like things like that? So with, yeah. with, uh, with those introductions in mind. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. It's, it's, uh, I'm going to have to go back a little bit, I think, uh, and dial it back to the mid nineties, which uh, probably dates me a little bit, but, but my, uh, my tech career started in kind of a, an unlikely place. And, uh, and that was working for a large grocery chain. And, uh, and so you might think, well, what, what on earth would that be all about? But I spent the later part of the nineties driving around a U-Haul truck completely full of computers and check stand type stuff uh, between uh, every Safeway store in uh, Arizona and Nevada and Southern California. And uh, I can assure you that nothing smells worse than a gallon of milk dumped in a checkout scanner months later. <laughs> and so, and so I, I, spent, I spent a couple of years doing this, driving around, uh, all wee hours of the night, uh, you know, cruising through the desert two in the morning, you're falling asleep. You're like, Oh my God, I got to pull over and go and take a nap. Waking up, uh, to the sound of a cop knocking on the window and saying, Hey, who are you? Why, what's this van of computers and why are you asleep in the desert? And, uh, and so that's kind of how I started tech. We were, we were rolling out this, um, this receiving application to every grocery store. And it, and it was built on a, a SCO open server uh, tower system we were putting in, into every store and all those little handheld scanners you see them running around with back in the 90s. And, and, uh, and so that, that was my first, uh, my first tech job. And I got that job because I was working in a store uh, through college stocking frozen foods. And I just happened to see a, a post go by saying, Hey, we need volunteers to do this. And next thing you know, I'm like the guy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it was just kind of a, it was kind of a funny experience <laughs> moving from, uh, uh, studying computer aided manufacturing to being an IT guy. Uh, but, uh, so I started out that way and then, and then Wait, very just quick, out of curiosity for computer aided manufacturing, is that sort of like, uh, designing, um, yeah, designing how CAD, things are produced. I'm not CAD CAM machining type uh, okay. type stuff. And, you know, and that was fairly primitive in the '90s, but uh, mm -hmm. but it was growing, and so that's what I was going to school for. And and uh, working in a working in a grocery chain to 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 make my way through that adventure. And 
Uh, so, you know, I knew a little bit about computers uh, through that, but I, I really didn't know anything about uh, the Unix world. And, uh, and so what they really needed was just, you know, labor, people who are willing to go drive around and, and schlep heavy boxes and, and climb under check stands and all that. And so, so I signed up and I uh, didn't pay squat, uh, but it was neat. I got to see all sorts of parts of the world that, you know, I probably still would never go see again. But um, uh, that that got old. Uh, yeah, a couple a couple of years driving around, and uh, you know, and it was taking me away from school and all that. But I, uh, so I, I thought, well, you know, I've I've learned a little bit about this Unix stuff along the way, and and that was you know kind of before the big SCO flame out, and mm-hmm. the the tech world was booming. Right, this is right before the the dot com explosion, so it was the good times. And I and so I joined a startup, and uh, and and started to get into uh, into SunOS type stuff. And this was a wow. So this was a startup doing uh, high volume faxes, which is kind of a, a thing I wouldn't really say today. But yeah. major major cruise lines <laughs> used our platform to uh, to send millions of faxes a day to their travel agents. And and so we built this appliance. It had T1 lines hooked up to it, and. And, uh, and so we're sending millions of faxes and that was a lot of fun. That startup did pretty well. It, uh, it got acquired and, uh, I met, I met some folks that turned into lifelong friends and, um, through that I said, Hey, well, okay, it's time to go do another one. Once you get a startup going, you, you're like, all right, well, let's, let's go do another one. Well, the next one was like a, a fabulous semiconductor company took completely out of my space, but I was the guy to, uh, to build out all their, uh, sun workstations and this was in a, in a, a chip design setting okay and so uh so these solaris workstations were everything to them and uh uh that was a you know go take 40 50 million dollars worth of funding kind of startup uh in 2000 and poof that just exploded right and, yeah you know the, the rest is history for 2000 um yeah. but it was a really fun three-year run doing that and when that blew up i well i needed a job so I'm like, all right, well, the startup thing didn't work out and there are no more startups. Uh, and so time to go hit up a big company. And so I did a whole series of, you know, Nike, Hitachi, Xerox, Siemens, and, and eventually Sun Microsystems. That was good. Um, even a power company in there. And I, I went through all these big companies. Why was Sun went, Microsystems good? Well, it's because it was the stuff I liked to work on. Uh, okay. you know, I felt like, Hey, I'm going to learn more. Um, I'm going to learn more about Solaris, more about storage. And, and, you know, these are the, these are the real experts in it. And it was the products that I was supporting. So I thought, Hey, you know, that's a great learning experience. Um, yeah. You get to go deep with the folks that make it. Got, got to go deep yeah. on a few things. And that was, um, that was a lot of fun. Um, but ultimately I, you know, the, the startup itch, like once you have it, it, there is no cure and uh, it's in your blood. And so I set out, you know, to do another startup. This was, you know, on the heels of all these strong feelings, bureaucracy, uh, feeling like you can't get anything done. You don't know who owns the thing or who you can talk to about the thing. So back to the startup world. And that turned into like a 14 year journey, um, building a company called Iovation and, uh, that, that for me really shaped uh, who I am today. 
Wow. 14 so years. We, That's a lot of time. A long yeah. time on a startup, right? I mean, everybody says a good startup takes takes a decade. Well, they're, they're not wrong. Um, but I had never committed myself to, to anything like that for, for so long. And uh, so, so Iovation was a, in the fraud and identity space. Um, we were a, a device recognition platform. So we uniquely identify the devices accessing our customers' websites. And, you know, you, you, everybody loves these uh, fingerprinting and tracking type companies. Well, we were yeah. one. Yeah. Right. So we, <laughs> we, we were one, but we liked to say that we were a good one because, because of the intent of why we were doing it. So, so we were uh, device printing and user devices and then building a graph of associated accounts. So, so if you logged into uh, your bank from, from your laptop, that would become an association. And then if you logged in as a different user, that would also become an association. And we found these fraud rings where, you know, an account, a, a device is associated to thousands and thousands of accounts. And clearly in that sort of situation, there's an, an account takeover type scenario going on. And, and so we, we became these virtual crime fighters. And, and we got to where we're analyzing millions and millions of transactions a day. Now, at this point, every large bank in America is using a platform like this. Um, but, but scaling that environment was, was hard. And mm -hmm. um, this is going to sound crazy, but we've, we first built that platform uh, in Oracle, of all things. So, so we had this uh, Perl API tier. Uh, oh, in front you of said Oracle Pearl. database. Yeah. You said Sun Microsystems. You said T1. I mean, that's yeah. all feels old, old stuff, right? So so, yes, yes. Yeah, some old yeah, stuff exactly. here, right? And so so we, we built this platform. And this is like 2007. Yeah, 2007. In, uh, in Oracle PL SQL, collect mm -hmm. all these different device elements, uh, anything we could gather in the browser at the time, which was more then than you can get now. Uh, and and do some do some analysis and come up with a with a device print. I cannot think of a more expensive place to do that kind of computation than inside of an Oracle database, right? I mean, maybe your Datadog contract now, but but at the time that that was it. And um, and so we knew that if we were going to scale the company, we had to take that thing apart. And uh, and when we we were just cycling through DBAs as fast as we possibly could. We, you know, we asked Oracle, what's it going to cost to get a whole lot more Oracle? And, you know, the answer is always, well, how much do you have? <laughs> you know, and so, uh, so we ventured out on this path to decompose that system. And uh, we, we built it out in Java services um, at the time. And, and over the course of, of those 14 years, it, it ended up being hundreds of services and, uh, and, you know, about seven physical data centers connected with dark fiber rings. And we were a huge Cassandra shop uh, okay. to build out this graph. And uh, we were just a little too early for cloud. Mm -hmm. You know, we were we were going through this journey in 2010 through 14-ish trying to decompose this thing. All the while, the cloud is growing up all around us. And we're like, oh, man, we wish we could be there. And then we go do all this cost studies and we're like, oh God, our Cassandra environment would bankrupt us if we tried to run that in the cloud. And, uh, and so going through all that pain, uh, hundreds, of, hundreds of services, you know, dozens of dev teams, uh, you know, six or seven ops teams. And I was growing my career at the same time. I, I joined there as a, 
as an infrastructure architect and mm -hmm. uh, with the design and storage and Oracle type background and quickly saw my world kind of evaporating by what needed to happen there. Yeah. And uh, all, the, you know, all the while I'm like, well, I better learn something about all these services. And, and so I, I ended up progressing my career there to own compliance and security and uh, infrastructure and, and this new thing, DevOps, mm -hmm. um, as we're building it. And then we ended up building out SRE teams and, and, and all of the new, all of the new hot buzzwords that were that were coming along and um, got really uh, uh, deeply involved with that half of the business. And so it split it uh, between our director of engineering, uh, my, my good friend Kirk and I. And next thing you know, we're VPs and 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 not touching the tech anymore. And, you know, we've got directors working for us and teams under them and, and all of that. But but we kind of kept you know, our hands in the pie a little bit. Um, and so, you know, as we're breaking down those services, we started having all these problems, right? Like teams that don't talk to each other, teams that fight, you know, all the, all the things, Hey, I've got a security team over here and a dev team over here. And they like, they hate each other. Sure. And I can't mm -hmm. figure out, you know, how to make them talk and, and same going on with ops. And then, then GDPR comes along and throws a, a huge wrinkle in in what we're doing. And, and at so this I, point, how many people are you uh, roughly in the company? Uh, about two hundred. About two hundred. Uh, so that's a pretty decent size. Yeah. For, for what was a you know a fairly sounded like early, you were kind of early days startup. You know, two hundred yeah. is pretty pretty decent size at that point. Yeah, we had, we had grown to a couple hundred people and. Um, you know, our customers were were these big banks and and financial institutions. We we started out with like you know the dating type internet companies and social media type things. And turns out, you know, they they've got the problem. They they have all kinds of abuse in their platform. They're not going to pay any money to fix it. Yeah. Right. So so you know you you can, you can only support the, that type of a, a place for so long before you realize that uh, hey the banks are where it's at. And because uh, they'll actually pay to solve a problem, and but yes, they will. That, yes, they will. Yes, they will. But with that comes like, oh, okay, well, you're you're going to do SOC too, and we need you to be compliant with all of this. And you know, it was actually I I, I just read Investments Unlimited with John Willis's book uh, the other day, and it, it sent me through tons of flashbacks through audits with the Office of the Currency Comptroller, uh, which. Uh, they're, 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 it's totally scary experience, but but we had to go through all of that as vendors to these major financial institutions, and and getting our teams to work together um, was hard. And so that's as I love that book so much because it has all these flashbacks, and and uh, so we had dozens and dozens of dev teams and uh, going international uh, at the same time, and and we had this need to understand. Who owned what? And we did what, you know, pretty much anybody else would do. We created a spreadsheet mm -hmm. and um, and tried to work towards autonomous teams that could own the thing. Agile's, you know, Agile's the hot thing all around us. Can we put uh, DevOps personas and operating personas in the same team as the developers? How's that going to go? And, and, and it went reasonably well. But we kind of learned uh, along the way that 
just carving up who owned what wasn't ever going to be reality for us. Like, like we would go assign services to teams and then we'd discover that people uh, outside of those teams are contributing to them in, in like very meaningful ways. And whether that's uh, security trying to support multiple teams, because we can have a security person for each team um, or SRE trying to put uh, libraries in each, you know, in environments because they want to monitor things. And so we found out that we've got a lot of people who care about things that aren't necessarily the owners of those things. And, and, and getting those relationships to be, to be good. Um, there, there a lot of friction came out of that. And, um, and so I, I felt like I was pretty regularly dealing with the people problem more than the technology problem. You know, we had, we had these security folks that, you know, Hey, they got their list of problems and they just want them fixed. And we've got developers who got their list, you know, are on the receiving end of that list of problems. And they're like, well, this one doesn't matter. This one matters more, but you didn't rank it high. And this one, you know, this one is extreme and you're not focused on that one. And you want me to work on all of these, but, but I don't get it. And so. Yeah. Bad prioritization we, or communication right. somewhere there and probably yeah. driven by, you know, I mean, sounds like driven through just the need to, to be, to, to fall into some of the compliant or to be, what I'm trying to say, to be up to the standards that some of these compliance regulations require. I mean, there's, there's yeah. probably going to be some weirdness where you're like, listen, I know that doesn't seem like it should be prioritized above this other thing, but it has to be to yeah. make these people happy and sell the product. And so, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. So communication, a, I think, is everything in those cases. It mm -hmm. is. And, and a lot of learnings came out of that. I mean, I, I think. You know, that, that's kind of, I guess that's my origin story. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but so many learnings came out of that, um, that experience for me that that fed into what we're doing right now. And mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we wanted to solve a problem that is a big problem. And and I think um, DevOps is people. Yeah. I mean, we've got tools left and right. There are DevOps tools like you wouldn't believe. There are security tools like you wouldn't believe. Like there's, there's, there's a tool for everything. Uh, but, how do you, but how do you get all of the people to share that context with each other? I mean, so, so security is full of scanners. Uh, you got build pipeline tools up the yin yang. Like, do they talk? No, no. <laughs> right? Like, do, and, and then therefore, do the people using them, do they talk? No. And, <laughs> and so what if we could get them to talk? What, what if we could actually integrate this stuff? And that's, you know, I'm, I'm going to stop and talk about dry run for a second because we're, uh, we're, we're using dry run at open context. And so, sorry. And so, so Ken, I'm going to, I'm going to plug it. It's awesome. <laughs> so thank you. This whole getting uh, vulnerabilities instantaneously in the developer's hand at build time before the, you know, before it becomes a problem in production, like, like that's where this stuff belongs. Yeah. And, and so if there's any one thing we learned along the way, it's, I mean, we've heard James say it, a bug is a bug is a bug. Um, yeah. It's that all of these things, whether it's your operability guardrails or your compliance rules or architectural standards or how you're going to test the thing or your security, like all of those things are product requirements. They're not well, one like thing a bolt on. Yeah. 
One thing that we had struggled with at GitHub, and I, I was very interested in, with in in open context, uh, was just the the, the sheer. Um, Okay, so you you talked about going from small to, to bigger, right? And and having more people, and and then and then your your position changed, and then it became solving the conversation or or solving some of the communication issues or or whatever friction points there were between people and all of this. And what I thought was really interesting is we started to face that at at GitHub, where it was like, uh, you know, okay, who owns what, um, and also how do we get awareness of what all services are out there? Where, what's the sure. overall, you know, health? What what are the the different? Just there's like a lot of information that if we had it, and we didn't have to rely on someone saying, "Oh, by the way, hey, we're doing this thing," like right. that right there solves a plethora of problems. And so that that kind of leads me to like that's when we were talking. I was like, "Oh my god, god, god!" Like this is. Because Seth and I talk so much all the time about uh, how you need more data points than than the ones that we tip, tend to typically use in security, specifically mm-hmm. security. But I think it's applicable, like you said, to it's all it's the whole the whole DevSecOps. It's all kind of combined. It all kind of commingles. It's starting to have more and more overlap. So we say security, but realistically, this extends out extends out further. But well, anyways, that was that. Yeah. I mean that 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 was my. Uh, like thought as Brian, as you were going through this is like, we, we have this discussion constantly. And I see this, especially as a consultant walking into organizations, they're like, help us with our security. And I'm like, the first thing first is you don't even know what you have. Right. Right. Like, uh, I, like so yes, it'd be great for us to go secure this one platform because compliance or whatever is asking for it. But if that's not the highest priority on your list, yeah, like, or it's not the most risky, whatever, like the right. you know system that's out there. Why are you spending that money here when you have all of these other problems? You don't even know like how right. big your you know, and and most of the mid-sized companies that I deal with struggle with that. Right, they just have no clue, right? Like where that fits. I mean, it looks like Open Context is doing a lot inside of GitHub and the identification of different players there. And, and that's a huge part of it, right? Like those like integrations of what the, who's maintaining the code, who's contributing, what their, what their role is. Um, but once you make those connections, it just rolls out from there, right? Like app in inventory yeah. or system inventory, not even an app or code inventory is just, it's a massive problem. And I mean, I've seen people try to approach this from a network perspective, like they scan the network yeah. or they're looking at Mac addresses or whatever else. But then also like GitHub, that's another way to go at it or your Git repositories. I, so I'd be interested to hear what other integrations, what other like data points you're looking for from a DevOps perspective that are yeah. going to help that out. Yeah. So so we're not taking a just security or, or just build pipeline approach. We're, we're, we're going after the whole SDLC. And, and it's okay. a bit there's a bit of audacity in that. Uh-huh. But uh, we started with with integrating with your repos. And discovering a all of the repos. Okay, well that's a pretty trivial thing to do. Now let's go a, a level deeper and say, okay, are there any code owners files in here? And if you're not doing code owners, whether you use Open Context or not, you should be doing code owners. And so code owners is a is a file that can live in your repo that declares, you know, who owns this thing. Uh, and it can be done either at the repo level or or in directory paths. And and so that alone. Huge, huge value. So we go, we scan for those. 
And then we say, okay, well, these are the declared owners of a thing. The thing that gets interesting is we're finding that the committers to things are not always the people that are declared in those things. So we want to get the committers too. So we get the repos, we get the committers, we get the code owners, we get anything that we can uh, get in terms of library data, and, and this will continue to expand. But now we know all of these things are owned by this team or committed to by these folks. And we import that into our graph. Uh, and so the way we do that is through uh, generating a context manifest. So in our manifests, we can have all of that data and dependencies, depends on, dependent on by tags, links to runbooks, links to threat models, the supporting documentation, uh, all the things you might need to operate a platform. What's this in scope for? And, and from there, we work out all of the platform dependencies. So that's the code side. Now, what we're, what we're going out the door with here in a couple of weeks for, for an open beta, which we can talk about later, is discovering all of the assets on the infrastructure side and marrying them to the assets on the code side. So the aim being in the graph to go from load balancer to who wrote the code all the way through the complete dependency chain and the, and the lineage of, of how did these things get to production. So, so declaring uh, what your infrastructure looks like uh, as context in a context as code uh, environment gives you that. And uh, of course, the feedback we immediately got was, yeah, that's awesome. I'm not going to build that. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you can go describe all of this context all you want, but, um, but, but we don't know what it looks like. So we can't just go write these manifests because we don't know what these dependencies are. You have to yeah. tell me. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the path we've gone down where, uh, okay, we'll do this all auto discovery. Uh, we'll automate it. And when a new, uh, when a new container image shows up, we're going to say it's got this image and it's through this build pipeline and it can trace it all the way back and, and drop it into the graph. And that's, um, that takes the lift off. Now, can we discover everything? No. Uh, it can absolutely be augmented um, through these manifests. And, and there's a lot you can do in your build pipeline to um, make the data more robust. But over time, we're going to discover more and more and more to where uh, when you turn open context on, we're going to discover all of these assets and, uh, and build the relationship graph uh, and the context graph automatically. And that's the aim of, of what we're trying to do here and, uh, and proving pretty successful on the on the code side already uh -huh. we're really looking forward I mean, to the cloud uh, the cloud discovery bits going into beta here yeah i think it's just it's this it's this okay every like security is one aspect of this we just you know kind of mentioned that but everybody can pull the data that they want it, i like the idea of basically setting it up so that you get as much information as you can on each repository to include like and I'll explain why in a second. I, I think that's really awesome from a security perspective. But I love the idea, starting with just the fact that you have all the data there and everybody can pick and pull what they need from that. That's just the first from a discovery. I mean, Seth, how many companies have been set up just for asset inventory and oh yeah, all, all of that? You know, they just they came it's along. It's a hard problem. Do, do that. It's a hard problem. It really is. And if I'm security 
and this is where I was going with earlier. It's, it's kind of like, there's, there's two kind of, I'll, I'll, I mean, there's more, but I'll just break it down into initial building, releasing something from scratch, and then just the periodic updates that occur. Now, when we talk about like, I think it's easier when it's just a new thing that came online. It's like, cool, that's fine. But for me as a security person, something that's already out there that already exists, I need to be able to, to understand over time what's changing over on that application. Because that's that's actually where I, I saw, I've seen in my, my practitioner career from a defense standpoint, there be the most issues because you get your initial like review when the new thing comes online. But then after that, like maybe a database is added to it. Maybe it's calling out to some new cloud service and you don't even know about this stuff. And these right. are data points that are super critical. And if continuously throughout the development phases, you can pick and pull those data points, you can then start assessing like the risk of things being shipped. And I think that that's really where from a security standpoint, practitioner standpoint, that really is where we need to start going is like have a system where we can, it just has all the data that we need and then everybody else has their stuff that they need. And then we just pick and pull what's relevant and assess and tune for risk and all of that um, as time goes on. Yeah, and have all the data is an interesting thing because you know the data exists already, right? You've got a pager duty environment completely full of incidents. Well, how many developers really see that? Uh, and how do they know that, you know, this this thing that they are, are managing in, uh, from a code perspective and a feature perspective is actually waking up an SRE team all the time? Like like that yep. context is missing. And that's where friction comes from between between teams. And, and so it's the same goes for security. You know, security's got... Uh, all the great tools in the world to generate these lists of problems, but how are they getting them to somebody who can fix them? And, and, you know, I believe, and, you know, this is a hill I think we'll all die on. Developers do care about security. Developers yes. do care about the operability of, of, of their, of their code. Developers do care that stuff remains safe and compliant. They do care. And uh, what's missing there is that shared context between um, the, the, um, and now I'm blanking on the word, but the, 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 the perspectives, um, of the different parts of the org, right. The, um, I feel like if the data were available, um, a lot of that friction and the perspectives would then just become shared. Well, especially as you grow, you get disconnected. You definitely get disconnected. I mean, I, like I said before, I've seen this over and over again as you grow like yeah you, you do you get a little disconnected from what one team is doing over here you know what's happening over there and just you know it's like again uh to to your point you need you need a way to keep up without necessarily having to pay, especially if you have a remote first company like we did yep. right um mm -hmm. that that exacerbates that whole thing like maybe a hundredfold to a degree because like, you know, you don't want to ping somebody, you don't know what time zone they're on. Uh, or even if you, uh, you may know what time zone they're on, but it may just be like an inconvenient time. You don't want to like wake them up. And maybe you just don't want to even ask those questions. And yeah, just having that sort of like, well, especially if you're not sure they're actually the one who is responsible for a thing. Like, like there's oh. this sort of imposition where I'm reaching out to go talk to somebody about a thing. I'm not even sure that they own it. 
and, and even just that little bit of a of a bit of friction in your mind's like, all right, well now I'm not going to go reach out. Well, what if you could just look? What if you mm -hmm. could say, you know, who was the last one to touch this thing? Right? Why is this code here? What other system depends on it? Who wrote it? Uh, where is it deployed in the environment? Uh, what customers depend on it? What does it do? Who can I talk to about it? And like, who owns it? Like, those are really hard questions to answer. I'll give yeah. you a great <laughs> yeah. example of going through that. Whenever we got bug bounty submissions in, obviously later I dealt with less of this because we had a dedicated bug bounty team. But in the first few years at GitHub, we'd get these bug bounty submissions in, or even when I was at Living Social, not through a bug bounty program, but you get bug reports. And the first thing you do is you start going in and you start looking at Git blame to try yeah, yep. and figure out who's the last one that touched this. Yeah. And then you're like, well, that person's not here anymore. So what team were they probably on at that point? Meanwhile, the team names have already shifted. shifted. And you're yeah. like, wait, uh, all right, who who do I reach out to now? And now let's talk about code owners because code owners aren't as simple as people think. Like, no, they're again, not. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not like there's like one team and you're like, cool. It's like, no, all right, this is a mono, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a monolith. It's got... Again, I'm going to use GitHub as an example, a huge API owned by, I don't know, 100 different teams. And each of them have to like declare which components of the API or which components of the monolith they actually own. And then you have to hope those teams still exist, too, by the way, yeah. and that it's been kept up to date. So it's always that is that is the bane of, of a lot of people's existence when it comes to incident response, whether security or, or otherwise. And it's out there. We're working with a, a shop right now that's got 200 people in one repo. And they and they manage collisions through code paths. And, and their whole world is, is keeping people from hurting each other. Mm -hmm. It's like the coordination involved in that is, is astounding, right? Um, so that's why we set out to not build another service catalog. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we looked at this, you know, this approach of, you know, what's what's out there existing to to try to do some of this stuff. Remember the CMDB? Oh, my God. Everybody thought the CMDB was going to be everything. And I think it was rooted in some really good principles, but I've never seen one that works anywhere. Mm -hmm. And and I've seen a million, a million different products show up and attempt to solve this, you know, to solve the CMDB <laughs> type of a problem. Uh, or service catalogs, right? They're they're very intertwined, and and it, and it just feels like the 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 big gap there is a they're they're not a real time view of the environment. They're always stale, and b they don't focus on the people. Mm -hmm. um, well, and that's I like to your point on the focusing on the people and the contributors, everything. Uh, Brian, I, I like I'm thinking back to some of the like early security tools to try to that tried to do this sort of like a graph analysis of like network, you know, and like they did really well on identifying like, oh, we we go and we talk to your Cisco switches and we go and we talk to different yep. like, components on the network. We can tell you that all these systems exist, but then they would never like log into like the Windows systems to tell you who was actually using those devices. Right. It was just like this, oh, well, it's on this network. It's this IP address and it has these vulnerabilities in it. And we know that it's up and it's actually being like, you know, yeah, it, it, so it's actually vulnerable and there's an attack path into it. But then going and actually fixing it required the people portion of that, right? 
and that's where that's where it would like you would struggle is you know same thing as a again as an external person going in and trying to help people fix their code most of the time they don't they have no idea where that like where it lives even like what git repository it actually lives in especially in a dynamic and style environment and i don't know where you can actually I, like, I don't know of another tool that's doing that sort of analysis. That's all I was trying yeah. to get to. Well, yeah. and, and that might be in the code environment. Uh, a lot of times we're faced with working backwards from prod, mm-hmm. right? So we found this thing. How do I even know what repo it came from? Like, like where is this code before I can even figure, you know, before I, what's the lineage? What artifact did this come from? How did that get built? And what repo does it even go back to? Like, yeah. that's really hard at a lot of companies. Like that's, yeah. that's a, that's a big challenge. And so, uh, so that's what we're, you know, that's what we're focused on and um, we're, we're super excited about it. I've got two, <clears throat> I've got two amazing co-founders. So Beth and Alice, uh, we've been working on this problem for about 18 months now and uh, uh, they're, they come from similar backgrounds. So, so, so Beth from HashiCorp and, and Puppet and, and, and Alice from Armory and, and Informatica, we've got, we've got a, the right team to, to tackle this and we're, and we're building up a fantastic uh, group of developers. So uh, we're hiring people who have lived this problem. And, uh, yeah. and you know, that's, that, that, that's, that's what I loved key. talking to you is how much you loved this, like how much you loved this problem and how much you love I mean, that, that, that was, that was the, the thing that really resonated with, with our conversation. It was like, you really, yeah, you've lived this, you care about this. It's not just, you know, just a, another thing to, to just a product to build or something like that. It's no, it's like really something you believe in. And yeah, it's, it's nice to see that. I, I had a, you know, I've gotten to meet a lot of interesting people um, through this journey. You know, I never worked in the DevOps industry, so to speak. Right. Um, but I, I got to meet one of the godfathers of DevOps on Friday, and and it was uh, it was interesting because he called this the holy grail of DevOps, right? We've got yeah. all these tools. Where are the people, right? This is this is work that is yet to be done in the DevOps world, and um, I just I feel like it's this is important work. I think the timing's right too. Um, really, I think it's it's it, tr- truly. I, I'm saying that because as we were talking, I mean, when we were having our conversations, I was like, man. Just, first of all, there's like a bunch of ideas that spidered off from how to how to use the tool. But in general, I think this goes to where you know Seth and I have been, and people we've had on the podcast, and the the community that that this the listeners that support the podcast and and. Uh, Everybody kind of has this acknowledgement that, I mean, you've heard everybody talk about shift left forever. And I think we're all acknowledging like, yeah, we keep saying shift left, but we're not really shifting left uh, to, to really any measurable degree. We're, we're maybe sometimes pushing responsibilities of our own onto developers, or maybe we're putting tools earlier on or whatever, but to really, truly start to um, shift left and to really be integrated, you have to really be integrated. You really have to, it all has to be one. It all has to be one big piece of the pie that we are all helping contribute to. And I think when you capture this kind of information, have it real time, have it backed with, again, you're not building a new service catalog, but these are things you attach to a service catalog, right? This, this, is, a, this is a picture and a window into sort of, 
yeah, exactly. The, the health of your environment. And again, you interpret it as you want. And I think that that's, yeah, that's the, that's, that's where we should be going. And so we, we anyways, we, I just keep saying that, saying that cause I was really inspired when we had those conversations and I don't yeah. say that like lightly, I, I really mean <laughs> that. And it's, it's been, I think also there's a lot of overlap in our, in our ideology there. So. Oh, there, there absolutely is. And, and I've been, you know, questioning the term shift left for a little while now, but that's, be, you know, I come from a product environment and, and so I, I view all of these things as product requirements. And so, you know, that, that means you have to care about this stuff right from the beginning. So if that is shift left, I, you know, I, I guess that's what it is, but I, I don't like the linear progression concept of the SDLC one thing yes. after another, after another. And there's been some, some recent work, uh, Emily Freeman at, uh, at Amazon did a, an interesting talk on, uh, the revolution model of, uh, of your SDLC and it, and it, views it more of a of a, a spoke uh and and pie model of of all of these things matter and your work is never done right you release something into production that ain't it it's not a one and done and so you're it's a continuous cycle right so where is left in a circle there there is no left and right There's in no, a circle, yeah. right yeah. so so yeah you got your release out the door uh, does that mean our security is over? No. <laughs> does that mean operability is beginning. over? No. Yeah. No, there's like, there's ongoing care and feeding, um, uh, to the, to this environment. And, um, uh, I used to like to joke, uh, at, back at Iovation and, and it always upset some people when I said this, but I said, Iovation doesn't sell software, sell service. And so a lot of shops, they get, they start to think of themselves as, oh, well, we sell software. No, you, anymore, you probably don't, right? You're, you're running this thing as a service and that service uses software, but there's all these other things that make that service uh, what people expect to buy, right? They, they expect you to be secure as a product requirement. They expect you to be compliant. They expect it to stay up and running. They, you know, they expect whatever service level agreements, all of those things are part of the service, and software is, of course, important at the at the very core of it. But but you're not selling the software. Yeah, you're selling the result, the outcome, the way it feels. That's right. Um, how it improves your day to day life, whatever it is, whatever really whatever it is. And so, you know, so it it all starts with product. And you know, if there's any one call I could have out there, it would be for product organizations. You know, we. People, I love to say developers love security. They do. They care about security and all that. I need to get product there, right? And a lot of times we we get a product organization that is uh, a feature mill. Uh, well, my customers are asking for this thing, so we got to go develop this thing. Well, what they're not saying is my customers uh, care about security. Well, of course they care about security, yeah. <laughs> right? But that work has to be... Um, facilitated in you know by product right product has to uh allow for that time because it you know the stuff isn't free mm -hmm. um, developers have to be given time to work on security developers have to be given time to work on operability they have to be uh, allowed the capacity to do all of the things that make a, a valuable service that, that's an interesting point because i've i've seen 
like I'm thinking back to different organizations that I've seen over the past, you know, decade or so. Right. And I've, I've definitely seen organizations where security became more important than, um, availability or like, you know, the, just the DevOps, the typical kind of operation, operational needs of a platform and was turned into almost like a, you know, dictator style organization where everything ran through security, even changes to availability and systems and other things that they probably had no real, uh, no real need to have a say there. But because of the structure of the organization, the size of the security team, like it was outsized in comparison to those other teams. And it came from a good place because, you know, at some point, one of the, you know, executives decided, hey, our our software needs to be secure. Our service needs to be secure. So we're going to make that a top priority. But yeah, it swung to the level of, okay, now it's outsized. And then on the flip side, I've also walked into organizations where, security has been an afterthought for so long, right? They claim to still be a startup after 15 to 20 years and the developers just don't get time, right? You know, they've got a backlog of security issues, um, you know, half of which would be considered critical anywhere else or if they were serving a different population, but they just don't get the time to work on it because product or the executives don't, don't take it seriously. So it's this, it's this fine balance that requires, having that full view rather than just like these siloed, Hey, these are the, these are the priorities that we have on our product requirement list. Right. Yeah. That shared context. Right. I mean, you're always going to have more vulnerabilities than you have capacity to fix. Right. The same way you're always going to have more features that you want to build than you have capacity to build. You're, you're faced with how can I prioritize this work? And, I guarantee you that a, a shop with zero CVEs also has nothing valuable uh, that the world will pay money for. Yeah. Because they're going to spend all of their capacity, checklist security, right? We are compliant. We don't have a single feature you want to pay money for, but we are compliant, compliant. right? And so yeah. there is a balance there. And I think from my perspective, the only way to make those decisions is by the is with the people who understand the environment right Mm -hmm. and so you have to have developers in that discussion uh about what how we prioritize risk i've seen a lot of ivory tower security teams that want to go prioritize risk and they don't include the developer and they don't include the people who actually know how the system works and that creates just pain for everybody right yeah Yep. Yeah. Well, and I, I get asked this quite often as a consultant is like, oh, what's the prioritization on this list of vulnerabilities that you found in the code? And I'm like, slow down. You don't want to be asking me that, right? Like right. that's a misunderstanding of what your role as a developer, as a business actually is and what my role is, because I can't tell you what's most important to uh, to the people that are writing the code, to the, you know, the product owners, to everything else. If you're asking me that and you have no idea, yeah, I can tell you to go fecal, fix that SQL injection or whatever vulnerability. But if that, you know, if that's not really important, it's on a system that, that you know, that's not making you money and it's only internal, right? Like the whole prioritization effort is skewed. I am, I'm only looking at this small, small silo of what you've actually developed and what you've put out there. So it's a... 
anything that helps answer that question from a, an organization perspective is something that, that that would just be a godsend to a lot of organizations. Yeah. So we know how to weigh risk, right? It's, uh, I mean, there's, there's countless frameworks out there for weighing um, uh, impact to probability, right? That's, that's like the, the root of most risk scores out there, but the, but the people making those assessments, are they the right people? Right. Yeah. So if security is saying, Oh, well, the impact of this, should it occur is enormous. And therefore, it's the top of the list. And but we didn't look at uh, well, what's the probability that it would occur? Um, then yeah. we're, we're not getting to the right answer. And the, and the only way to get to that is to have the people who truly understand the system be a part of the discussion. Yeah. Well, and that's I, I mean, I think that's one thing that like we've again, we swing we swung to the ivory tower security, you know, group that's there. But um, a lot of developers don't realize that those impact statements, right, like uh, are written by security people. And a lot of it, like I, I can make up a story where like, you know, uh, you know, an insecure cookie flag leads to right complete destruction of this application and takeover. Right. And like, yes, like there there's always that possibility of having an application there because you're going to have those security weaknesses that are inherent to hosting a system and providing a service to your point. But um, the developers don't necessarily recognize that that's, that's not a like uh, a defined list of impacts that, you know, is, you know, is to be taken. Yeah. As, as, as wrote scripture, whatever you want to call it. Right. It is a, it is an opinion based on what they know of that application. And they probably don't have the same knowledge as the the developers do. So this is, you know, for me, this is why, um, well, we built a security champions program. Mm -hmm. And, and so everybody's got a different definition of of what this is. So, so, so here's mine. We take a, uh, in an autonomous developer team, we take a developer on that team, uh, nominated by that team to be the security champion. And we have that security champion uh, participate in a, in a council, security council. And in that council, you've got product folks. Maybe you've got some client executive type type folks who can who can help weigh risk. And then you've got security and operations and, and development. And that group collectively with all the right people and all the right knowledge can go make those risk decisions um, and, and collaboratively, right? I mean, to me, if developers aren't at the table uh, in the risk discussions, it's pointless. Yeah. Like there's just, you know, a, a security council that doesn't include developers has zero place in your business as a, as a product company. And, and I've seen it out there a lot. Right. And so, you know, you have to have people who are close to the problem. Um, you know, security is the responsibility of the engineering team as a, as product requirement. And so if they're not included, it's a mess. Yep. Yeah. I, I like, I always like to tell the story during training and Ken's heard this before, right? Like the, the, the best vulnerabilities that I've like some of them, like finding a SQL injection in like a, a web service, you know, through a code review thought like we were hot shit or whatever, and then went to report it to the development team. And like, after my statement of, Hey guys, like we found SQL injection, the lead developer was like, Oh, did you find it here? Like right at the spot <laughs> in the service that I found it in. 
And I was like, damn it. Yes. Right. Like that's exactly where I found it. But it was because I just didn't ask that question of before I got into it, like where, what are your biggest concerns with this code base? What are your biggest concerns? Like it just kind of taught me that, you know, early on in my career, this lesson of, yeah, like they know more about it than I do. And I may be the security guy and I can find it and exploit it, but they're the ones that have to deal with it. Right. And they already know, uh, like they, they care about security. They know they probably need to fix it and refactor things and whether or not they get the time, right. Is the other thing. So, yeah. yeah. And scans and findings and all that kind of stuff is all great, but it all pales in comparison to overall, a well-reasoned threat model in my opinion. You know, if, if you've got developers participating in a regular threat model exercise, that's going to turn up things that will make your, you know, send a shiver down your spine and that might not show up in a scan. Yeah, that's right. why I, I philosophically believe, I mean, truly believe that this, this, the way of securing things in the past is, is kind of, it's, it's, Again, it's one data, like a scanner. That's a one, that's one okay data point. It shouldn't be your control gate. It shouldn't be what you decide to whether or not you're going to ship software. That's just not enough information. It's like, what does this thing do? What are all the components of this application? What pieces of the code paths are being touched? What, who's doing that? Have, have, have they ever touched this repo before? Or do they, are they trained? You know, there's a whole bunch of questions you could ask. And it just doesn't make sense that we have for the longest time said, Let's take a scanning tool. Let's put that in. And then if it finds something cool, you know, you can't ship until you fix that. And otherwise, go ahead. That's just not enough. And it's why we continue to see things ship with vulnerabilities over and over and over again on, on stuff that was previously secured and, and all that. So I, I yeah. yeah, 100% think that the, the data points have to expand outside of what's been used previously. Yep. Yep. Well, and, and I mean, I think that's where it's great that, uh, you know, Ken and I, along with you, Brian, like we get excited when we start to see that context because we yeah. are struggling with it on a daily basis. Um, or I see people struggling with it. I know like, you know, we do as well. And so it, it, it'll be interesting to watch how things progress. Like the, the more that you can pull in and actually like expose that data. Um, it's great. Um, so, but along those lines, right. With, I feel like we could go for another, you know, hour, but yeah, we I, I, I do want to, I want, I want to be cognizant of your time, Brian, and I appreciate you coming on, you know, Absolutely. and speaking with us about this. Um, if people want to continue to have a conversation with you, like where can they find you? Like what are the yeah. channels that you use? So uh, I'm in, uh, well, I'm in the absolute AppSec Slack channel. Sweet. Good answer. Best place yes, ever. Yeah, ever. Best place ever. So uh, opencontext.com is our website, and I'm a pretty easy-to-find guy on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm at BD Walter on Twitter. It's on the screen right there. Uh, Open Context is, is GA for, uh, for all the code and, and context as code components already. We're going into beta for uh, uh, cloud discovery. Um, so we'd love to have you. Uh, I will hook you up. I'm happy to give anybody access. Uh, that uh that wants to try it out and um uh that's it, you know yeah. that's where that's where we're at i'll be at monitor rama in portland next week and uh and so any anybody go on to that i'd love to love to meet you there i'll be at devops days seattle as well um and hopefully github universe so yeah but uh but do hit us up i'll i'll hook you up okay sweet I, it's yeah. worth it it's worth a try guys I, I would definitely give it a shot I think this is very exciting. 
Yep. Yeah, we deploy uh, SaaS or on-prem in your Kubernetes environment. So if uh, if you're not ready to take the leap on a SaaS service, we can uh, we can do on uh, self-hosted as well. So awesome, cool. Well, good deal. Um, appreciate it, uh, Brian. Likewise, this yeah, is thanks for your time. Yeah, it's been it's been a fun conversation. There's a lot. I got a lot going on in my head, right? Like, which is always a good thing, but you know, it, it does mean that we don't get to all the questions and stuff. I know we had a couple on, uh, um, on YouTube, but it, you know, we'll, we'll take it into the, into the Slack channel from there. Um, if you haven't listening, if you haven't joined the Slack channel, please do. You can find Ken and I and Brian there, um, as well as a lot of other conversations that are going on. Um, a lot of good people, uh, and Yeah. Otherwise, um, I think we will go ahead and call it for today. Ken, is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, just thank you again, Brian. Uh, thank you to the listeners. And yeah, Seth, this is why Brian and I had such a long dinner. And then I think the next morning we were at the airport just chatting about this forever. So, <laughs> man, I'm just, yeah. I'm just happy to get you on the podcast and for everybody else to hear about this. Because, you know, if I hadn't gone to DevOps Days, I don't think I would have met you. So yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Yep. Good call. All right. Uh, Well, thanks to Brian. Thanks to Redpoint for sponsoring today. And we will catch you all next week. Thanks.